welcome back to the New Wave podcast again. I am Pid. I am Nuveen. We are the New Wave. We are the New Wave. We said it too bad. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, today we have a very, very special guest that we've been um, kind of going back and forth, back and forth. Our schedules haven't really been um, matching up, but we're finally, we're so happy to have Raz Gardi. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, I kind of took your bio off of Wikipedia <laughs> and I'm about to read it. <laughs> okay. So Raj Gardi is a Kurdish New Zealander, international lawyer and human rights activist. Her notable work includes working on the prosecution of ISIS for their targeted genocidal campaign against the Yazdis. She was awarded the Young New Zealander of the Year for 2017 for her services to human rights. Um, I got that part. I copied and pasted that part. And also the founder of Empower, um, a youth-led organization aiming to address the underrepresentation of refugees in higher education. Razgardi, thank you so much for being here. Thank Hi, you. it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's hot, but it's good. Is it still hot over there? You're you're in southern Kurdistan right now, yeah? Uh, so I am, yeah, I'm currently in Kurdistan. I am in um, a village just, I guess, on the border of Turkey and Iraq. Um, formerly, and I hate calling it that, Bashur and uh, Bakur, Kurdistan. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm in the mountains, so it's a bit cooler than being in Holid or Dehok, where I usually am, but... Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still hot. It's too hot for this New Zealander. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You, well, here it's very cold where I'm at. So I kind of envy the warmness of you, for you guys. Yeah, where are mm-hmm. you right now? Mm-hmm. I'm in Minnesota. Nuveen is in Nashville. <laughs> okay, yeah. In Knoxville. Knoxville. Yeah, yeah. And the weather in Tennessee is very similar to the weather in Kurdistan. So dry. I feel you. It's yeah. pretty hot over here, too. Dry and hot, right? Well, the air is uh-huh. humid. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, the only difference is it's pretty humid here. Yeah, that's like New Zealand. New Zealand, weather, um, the summers aren't that hot in terms of, you know, it doesn't even reach 30 degrees, but it's really, really humid. So it's that mm-hmm. sticky, hot, yuck feeling. <laughs> Yeah, which is like almost worse. I think it's worse too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been like ooing and awing all over your Instagram and these beautiful photos you've been taking. We were just talking about I was it just... before. Like, oh. <laughs> she looks so yeah, British no... clothes. <laughs> Thanks. No, it's been really nice. I am obviously working here, but reconnecting with uh, culture and language and family has been the most exciting part. How long has it been since you've been like back? Um, so I've I made the move for this job that I'm currently doing uh, in January. So it's eight months that I'm here. Okay, so you're you you've been there for eight months, or you're gonna be there for eight? No, months? I've been here for eight months. <laughs> oh wow. wow! Yeah. So how are you liking it? Um, I love it. I mean, obviously the experience uh, is a bit different because of the pandemic, and so. 
um, were restricted in a lot of ways and there were many aspects of you know being in Kurdistan that I missed out on this year um, but I guess it's fine because um, you know it's something that we're experiencing globally so it's not just unique to me but it does make things a bit um, you know like especially enjoying spring in Kurdistan it's a personal fave no doors um, you know and that didn't really happen this year so I was um, mm. a little bit sad but hopefully next year yeah um did you okay so could you like kind of share your story with us a little bit give us a little summary um how did you get to where you are today oh okay um where do I start um From wherever you want whatever you want <laughs> wherever you want you can go any route yeah so it's a lot a bit of a long journey um I was born in Pakistan in a refugee camp there my parents had fled as uh, political activists so they were granted refugee status in Pakistan and I, I guess uh, I'm just starting with being born in Pakistan but the story is pretty long mm -hmm. of how they got there yeah. um Right, but they they'd obviously been refugees in um, Iran, as many others Kurdish families had, mm -hmm. were, and then um, they fled to Pakistan, where they were told that it would be six months before they were resettled, and it ended up being mm -hmm. nine years that my family was in Pakistan. Wow! Um, wow! And actually, there's a lot of Kurdish people across um, the U.S. that were in Pakistan with us, um, so. Really? There, you know, we were all really spread out. We were lots of different families that had gone from Iran, and so some families already knew each other, and then others that we met in Pakistan. I was born there, you know, so I spent um, the first seven years of my life there. And then there were a lot of uh, families that we became very close with, and um, obviously the nature of uh, United Nations resettlement programs um, mean that it's unpredictable. So we were sent to New Zealand to resettle. Um, some other family friends, you know, were sent to. The US to um, Canada to the UK all across Europe um, Australia and then obviously little old New Zealand for us um, but that's uh -huh. how how my family came to be all the way on the other side of the world in New Zealand um, uh -huh. and so I grew up in New Zealand I studied in New Zealand um, and then I moved over to the US to study um, so I've had lots of different stints all around the world. I've always been focused on um, human rights, I guess, from a very young age um, because mm. of the ingrained passion for human rights and uh, justice that I had uh, taken on from my parents' human rights activism that they had done. And I have um, mm. a whole family history of activists and freedom fighters. And so yeah. it was, I guess in our DNA that I was going to do something that was um, – fighting for rights or justice and equality in some way or another. And so I spent a lot of time uh -huh. growing up wondering what that would look like for me. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and I guess there's been lots of, you know, fundamental moments in my life that have shaped that interest to uh, want to do law and, and in particular international law and human rights. Um, and yeah, so I'm, Long story short, I um, pursued law yeah. and um, was focused on human rights and international law throughout my study, um, then went to the U.S. and studied my master's. And, uh -huh. um, yeah, then this opportunity came up to work here in, in Kurdistan. I always wanted to come work here. 
Um, I always wanted to contribute my skills to my homeland, but I wasn't sure how. Um, and mm-hmm. interestingly, you know, I grew up thinking, you know, that was that was the aim. I was going to study. I was going to get experience. And when I had the right experience and qualifications, I would, you know, return to our homeland and contribute mm-hmm. um, to our people and nation. But the more I mm-hmm. studied and the more I got qualified, the harder that goal seemed. And ironically, I went through this identity crisis of thinking, well, I'm, I'm Kurdish, yes, but I'm a Westerner. I grew up in the West. Mm-hmm. And so am mm-hmm. I, you know, this whole uh, I, concept of um, this white savior mode. And even though, you know, I'm not a white person, oh. I'm still a person that uh, grew up in the West and has had the privilege of Western education um, at very elite Western institutions. And so I had a, a mm-hmm. bit of a crisis about, you know, do I go back to Kurdistan? Am I just some Westerner trying to impose my values on Kurdistan? Mm-hmm. Am I going to do more damage mm-hmm. or am I going to do good? So yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but I made the move and here I am. What is the work that you're doing now currently there? If you don't mind sharing or if you can share that with us. Yeah, generally I can share. So um, I'm part of an international team of lawyers where um, we're working to build cases for the prosecution of ISIS. Um, And so we're at the evidence gathering phase right now, um, basically interviewing survivors and witnesses um, and trying to put cases, dossiers, cases, evidence together that would eventually go before a court of law to hold um, individual di- ISIS members accountable for the crimes committed against the Yazidi community. Wow, wow. Yeah, because I, 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 I would read, you know, these articles and these headlines of, you know, this ambitious Kurdish, um, you know, lawyer who's, who's trying to, like, fight ISIS and take ISIS to court and this and that. And I never really knew, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> but I was just kind of like, what does that what does that look like? What does that entail? And, like, you telling me that, you know, you guys are now, it's like, it's a process of collecting evidence. And, um, you know, once you collect this evidence, who... How does that work? Where does this where does this evidence go? Um, yeah, so exactly. Um, yeah. Good question. Um, so it depends. There are obviously, as we know, uh, ISIS members um, from all across the world. Um, a huge mm. proportion of ISIS members were foreign fighters. And so that come from um, the US, uh-huh. from uh, European countries, from the UK, from um, Australia, from Middle Eastern countries, from African countries, like literally from all over the mm-hmm. globe. And so mm-hmm. um, it's a bit of a complicated process because, um, so one, you have to have the individual identifiable, right? You can't hold someone yeah. accountable in court if you don't know who they are or where they are. So there's, um, I think, two parts to it. One is identifying whether that person is still alive and in what jurisdiction they are. So it may be that they're mm-hmm. currently held in prison in um, the Kurdish region here in uh, Kurdish region in Bashur, or they may be held um, in Rojava prisons, or they may be in Iraqi federal prisons, or they may have Mm. been one of the foreign fighters that have been extradited to their home country. And so we have to identify where they are. It it may be someone that's at large because there's a lot of ISIS members uh, when, you know, um, they're, so-called caliphates um, came under attack and uh, ISIS was no longer in control of um, you know, large parts of Mosul and um, Syria mm. and Iraq. Uh, 
many ISIS members just like fled with civilians and like shaved their beards and hair off and pretended they were civilians. So there's a lot of ISIS members oh. who may still be in the communities uh, pretending yeah. that they weren't ISIS members, you know, just recently. Um, so that's another problem, trying to identify where they are. And then secondly, once we know where they are, it's which court is the um, most suitable to hold them um, accountable in and to start that process. So ideally, you know, from a lot of international lawyers and my own perspective is that each country should take back their foreign nationals and prosecute them in their own jurisdictions and courts. Um, okay. that, is, that is the best um, result for you know getting justice for the victims it's the best result in terms of easing the um, strain on places like Rojava which don't have the resources to set up tribunals and courts um, and also <laughs> and also uh, is in the best interest of justice and you know having a fair and independent trial which I don't think is possible in in some places like Iraq for example. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why these countries should take back their foreign nationals and hold them accountable in their own courts. But, you know, it's a very mm -hmm. big political issue at the moment. Um, yeah. Alternatively, you know, we would have an international court set up, but it doesn't look like the UN is going to do something like that. And so that seems out of the question. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that makes... Thank you. So as the headlines, the headlines make out that I'm just this like what, this lone wolf going after ISIS by myself. That's not the case. There's a lot of people yeah. involved. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, yeah, like you, you kind of briefly discussed and talked about like some of the challenges and even just kind of, you know, growing up in the West and having this Western um you know, influence, it is definitely, and I think a lot of Kurds in diaspora and a lot of just members in diasporic communities definitely feel this and can relate to that of, you know, um, you know, what other challenges, you know, have you had to overcome, you know, is there any, um, yeah. That... You mean like here in Kurdistan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely challenges and advantages as well, I think. So yeah. um, the challenges, as you know, uh, in terms of uh, women's rights, in terms of, mm. um, you know, that's we're still a long way behind. And so mm -hmm. it can be a bit frustrating as a young woman. Um, and especially, you know, I'm more qualified than a lot of people I come across uh, and not saying mm. that in an arrogant way, but just in a like factual I know that I'm more qualified to do this job that I'm trying to do and you're getting in my way just because you are male and think you're better than me there's a lot of that th happening um yeah. and that's pretty frustrating and um uh, yeah. you'll understand where I'm coming from on that regard but there's um also you know in terms of language barriers so yeah I speak uh, Kurdish fluently I grew up with um, a Kurdish family both my parents are Kurdish and we spoke Kurdish mm -hmm. at home I've always attended Kurdish events and been culturally involved, but I have not yeah. studied in the Kurdish language. I didn't do my law degree in Kurdish. And so the language barrier is a, a bit difficult. You know, no matter how fluent I am in Kurdish, it's still not to the level where I can comfortably speak about political and legal issues like I can in English. So that's been a bit challenging yes. for me. Um, obviously it's a completely different world to what I'm used to. There's a lot of things um, just, you know, that you just don't, uh, realize or you take for granted until you don't have access to them more anymore or it's a bit more difficult 
um, you know, just simple yeah. things like uh, being able to, you know, as a young woman, again, go out and drive somewhere on your own. Um, mm. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's tough. That's the reality is the culture is different and um, girls get uh, annoyed a lot. They get harassed a lot. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, the culture is still not to that level where they find it normal that a girl is just driving past you and, you know, not seeing that as an invitation to follow her. Um, so, oh my goodness. so yeah. I find that very frustrating. Um, yeah. and just learnings, you know, that I can't fight everything. Like I can't fight, fight every point. I can't, um, you know, I can't pick a fight whenever I think something is unjust or unfair. So I have to pick my battles and that's been pretty tough. Um, in terms of yeah. ad- advantages, which I think is also um, not necessarily a good thing, but because I have studied in the West, they automatically think that I am smarter than someone who has studied here. Um, okay. And so there is a lot of that like Western privilege. Um, yeah. they will, they will uh, place someone who has studied in the West, regardless of what degree or what institution or what, what their qualifications are, uh, just by virtue mm. of having studied at a Western institution, uh, you're, you're regarded as being um, more qualified than someone here who may, you know, be as equally or if not more qualified. So there is that side of things. But again, I think that that also is like a, a bit of a disadvantage for me because I'm Western, but I'm still Kurdish. So I fall into this weird, right. this weird place. Like, where am I from? I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I saw that you posted like a couple, I don't know, it was maybe a, a month ago or so. And you had posted, you know, you did this, you went on, um, I think it was Rudo and you had an interview and I guess people were like, just kind of, you're getting a lot of backlash about having, um, like you were answering, you were doing the interview or you were talking in English and they had like a Kurdish voiceover. Yeah. And, and I was just so, I loved your response and, and, and I was so furious because this is something, you know, um, I think we all like, that's like the main thing that people love to, to attack is Mm. when, when we start, when we speak, when we, um, Exactly. Yeah. And I you think- know what I mean? Like I did an interview, I did an interview for this like newspaper about my art and Duhuk like a year ago. And he, you know, was asking all the questions in, you know, we were going back and forth voice audio messages. And I was trying my best to respond in Kurdish. But then again, like you said, it's like, I didn't study art. I didn't study fine art in Kurdish. So when I do try to articulate what I'm you know what I'm trying to say in Kurdish I sound stupid exactly like, you know <laughs> and that's um, two sides I can't to it fully express I can't fully express myself in Kurdish I under you know it's so um but you put it in such a like I was like yes this is exactly like um yeah and then and then, and then people like to question your like your authenticity or or even like you know there's a lot of um people make the arguments like oh but you don't speak kurdish it's like okay and yeah or like even kind of belittle people's um it's you know the first thing I, that yeah when they don't have a response that is the argument but i see it two ways like you said one on one side of it is that okay i will do this interview in kurdish i've never studied 
law in Kurdish, just like you haven't studied fine mm-hmm. art in Kurdish. And so I'm going to get concepts wrong. And then you're going to assume I'm yep. stupid, not that my language skills are not good. And then you're going to, right. you know, then they're going to have backlash and say that I'm not qualified to be talking about this topic because I'm not smart enough. Yeah. So that's one mm-hmm. side of it. You can't win. And then if you do it in English in the language that you're comfortable in and that you can articulate yourself in, then there's backlash mm-hmm. for doing it in, in a language that's not your mother tongue. So I, the way I see it is like you can't win in that scenario. But I still think yeah. that um, getting your point across more articulately and to the level that you are mm. comfortable and happy with is still a better outcome mm. than doing a poor job of it. Um, yeah. And then th- I think what's more frustrating is the fact that if people didn't know that I was Kurdish and I did the exact same interview, people would be applauding me <laughs> and saying, wow, she's so smart or she's got you know such great points. Just as they would for you if they didn't know that you were Kurdish. But the minute they know you're Kurdish, it's all all of a sudden a weak weakness. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a point of yeah. Um, or 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 even like I was I was screen printing T-shirts of uh, Salahuddin Demirtaş, and somebody I was on Instagram Live, and somebody said he's not a real Kurd because he doesn't speak Kurdish. Oh. Okay, yeah, this, like, it's frustrating. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Right? They don't understand, like, the centuries of assimilation and ethnic cleansing mm. and <laughs> banning mm-hmm. our language in certain parts of Kurdistan to get that result. Um, so, yeah, right. it's frustrating. And I have found it that is. amongst a lot of young people here, that there's some that are very aware of issues, but there are some that have no idea about, like, the Kurdish struggle um, and so I find it hard to connect with some people, young people mm. that just have like no mm-hmm. clue about, you know, even what's happening in Bakur or Rojava mm-hmm. or Rojalat, or they will say some like, you know, just like you mentioned, they don't even speak Kurdish. Um, so they're not real Kurds. Those kind of comments. Right. It's frustrating. Yeah. It is. It is. And it, it's like, come on, how are we going to move forward if we're still stuck on this? And I think it requires a lot of relearning. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of relearning your own history and um, asking more questions and um, but yeah I don't know that's that's very strange that's that's frustrating um but it, speaking of Turkey what do you think about all the human rights violations happening in Turkey right now if you feel comfortable talking about that or just any thoughts on that yeah no I've written I've written a lot about this topic um my thesis paper topic mm. was actually about um Kurdish rights and self-determination um for Kurds in Turkey so it Uh is something that I have pretty strong views about unfortunately the situation hasn't changed for decades and in in some Mm -hmm. situations is getting worse um I think also you know it's evident that Turkey has committed a lot of human rights um violations and many countries are aware of this because uh, mm. you know for anyone in the European Union they know that mm. uh, Turkey has the highest number of convictions or for you know findings against um, the state for human rights abusers in any co- uh, any state that's gone before the European Court of Human Rights they have the highest number of human rights violations and so that speaks for itself yet um, mm-hmm. what's more frustrating is not that everyone is aware of the human rights violations, but that everyone seems to be um, silent and um, silent looking the other way. Yeah. yeah. So, oh. and especially, you know, in and, this area, like, uh, and it's not as far as people think. People would think that it's like, um, I think the media fails to really hone in on the issues about, you know, how 
uh, imminent and how you know frequent these attacks are and how you know, persistent the state is. And it's not just against who they deem as terrorists, but actually civilians all the time. Um, like, you know, just a few weeks ago, there was an airstrike against a civilian car uh, just outside of Duhok. Um, you know, mm-hmm. basically the route I take to get back to Duhok when I've been um, visiting our village. And there was an yeah. airstrike against a car that they thought was uh, filled with members of the, you know, PKK, but actually it was just a car of civilians. And so I'm like, why are people not getting angry about this? This is not something that you can just say, oh, this happened, report it and move on. Right. But and I, mm. Yeah, I think a lot of the issues and a lot of the, the things that I hear from from Boshud and, and the locals, is, um, which is also kind of disheartening, is just kind of like, well, well, why are they here? Why, why mm. is the PKK um, in Boshud? They need to go, you know... They need to get out. Yeah. So I think, it, it, again, it comes down to lack of knowledge and um, understanding. Like, this stuff is not necessarily taught. I think with us, a lot of diaspora Kurds, um, you know, one of the main factors, and I think that underlines our identity, is is the sense of knowing our culture and history. And so um, I guess we do a lot of uh, research. We put a lot of effort into understanding where we've come from and who we are. Whereas people that are living here in that situation don't necessarily, you know, uh, need to feel that, you know, deep sense of um, connection to their homeland because they're here. And so I feel like a lot of young people, especially, I'm not talking about the older generation, you know, whatever their thoughts are, maybe uh, completely for different reasons. But at least when I'm talking to young people here uh, who hold these kind of sentiments like, oh, yeah, they should go back to, uh, you know, across the border and leave us alone, is a lack of understanding about their history and culture and lost, lack of understanding about uh, the Kurdish struggle and um, how, res- you know, respective governments um have treated the Kurdish people across those four regions. I think there's mm-hmm. definitely um, lack of knowledge about the real issues that are persisting. Um, and that's what I, I personally attribute this, these kind of comments to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how can people in the West be an ally and how can we be productive um, uh, in regards to all of these issues you know i think often a lot of us feel like we're you know every one of us our, our hearts like you know i feel every like we always try we to find a role it. Mm. contributing yeah i guess okay that, it's kind of tough because i go through phases of thinking that um you know we can achieve a lot through for example, mobilizing through social media and um, uh-huh. rallying and, you know, calling our representatives in, you know, parliament or in Congress or House of Reps or whatever, you know, our legislative body is or representative body is in the, in the country that we're uh-huh. in. I go through phases of thinking that that's so important. It has such a massive effect. And uh, sometimes just feeling like it makes no difference at all and being overwhelmed and feeling like, what is the point of it all? And I'm sure many others who um, around the globe have been active, uh, you know, activists on these kind of issues um, uh-huh. have felt at some point or, um, you know, go through similar uh, thoughts, <laughs> and you know lose motivation yeah but mm. i think 
it, it is it does make a difference and I think that um we may not see change straight away but you know uh -huh. change takes a long time um some people think that change comes through you know changing the law first and then society follows but actually I think that it's um sometimes simultaneously or sometimes it's society that changes first and then the laws and policies follow to reflect society. And so mm. the importance of, you know, the voices that we have and the role that we play to continue mobilize and educate and, um, you know, raise our voices and demand our representatives um, to vote in a certain way when it comes to issues regarding um, Kurdistan. I think, you know, mm -hmm. we may get frustrated. We may not see change soon or even in our lifetime but it, it, it all makes a difference i think and slowly but surely mm -hmm. um i'm hopeful that it does lead to some positive outcomes when society uh you know slowly changes and reflects some of these you know what we we may be teaching today it may be just mm. we may have an effect on just like our neighbors and the friends and um, yeah. people around us but they may then you know be in a conversation where this topic comes up and they can then share their views and pass it on so it's you know small ripple effects i think that um ultimately make a difference mm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so you're you i mean the the empower the youth-led organization can you tell us a little about that yeah um so it really started with um you know personal experiences um and people in my community um both Kurdish community and refugee communities that are not re uh, Kurdish backgrounds. Um, I was just seeing that the number of, you know, obviously the figures globally are pretty uh, bad when it comes to education, high school for refugees, you know, uh, something like 1% of refugee background students make it to higher education, you know, in terms of any sort yeah. of institution or university. So the, the figures are pretty dire. And, and so it just got me thinking, you know, is it, uh, can it be that it's just, refugee background people are not motivated to study or uh, are not aiming for higher education or are not interested it can't that, that surely cannot be the reason that the numbers are so low so it has to be something else mm -hmm. and so I did a lot of um, I've done a lot of uh, advocacy work in terms of um, both the national level in New Zealand the regional level mm -hmm. in Asia Pacific and then represented um, refugee voices uh, and global platforms like the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees um, and, uh, you know, the Global Refugee Forum and the you know, various uh, consultations or high-level events that they have every year at the headquarters. And we've done a lot of research uh, through those. This is a long answer, but explaining where we got to this kind of organization. Um, we did a lot of consultations with young people refugees around the globe coming from various different contexts and uh, you know some were living in camps some were living as refugees but in urban settings some were uh, resettled um, like I was and um, so you know huge variety of people and experiences and what we found from these consultations were the same issues coming up over and over again regardless of where they were in the world and um, mm. the context they were living in and the background that they were from. And when it came to education, um, you know, we were always hearing, 
young people complaining about lack of support, lack of motivation, that the education yeah. system is not designed for them and that um, they have trouble na navigating these systems because often they're the first in their family to, um, you know, to go into these institutions so they have no one to guide them, to support them and to um, really mentor them through this process and they don't have the same social capital as others may have you know um, may take for granted that someone in your family is has gone to law school or has gone to med school or is an engineer and how much that actually influences um, you navigating that system and being able to know how to even to apply how to apply for funding how to you know select courses all those kind of things that mm. seem so basic when you have someone um, that can show you the way but really really yeah. Um, intimidating and tough when you don't have anyone there and so right. it was all these kind of issues that were coming um, to light for me and in my own community in New Zealand you know we have a lot of really uh, I think smart motivated people but a very high dropout rate um, for Kurdish you know my people in my Kurdish community and also people that were in you know the larger refugee community from all different back ethnic backgrounds very high, mm -hmm. high, high school dropout rate. And so yeah. I was working a lot with these young people trying to understand what, what it was. And it all came down mm. to the same thing again. And so that's why I thought, what about if we come up with a program that can, mm -hmm. that can reach these young people before they've dropped out of school to, mm. you know, guide them, to motivate them, to help them understand what options are out there and how to reach those goals and so that's what empower is all about we're mentoring program and running workshops and it's people from a refugee background um acting yeah. as role models and guiding uh, newly resettled refugees and refugees currently in camps that's amazing and like for you like um what is that was that something that you were that you wish you had more of um what was did you have mentors um when you were in school, how did you, you know, how did you kind of um, move through these these spaces? Um, yeah, I found it pretty tough because uh, both my brother and sister dropped out of high school. And so I didn't have anyone who in my family who had finished high school. Um, so I was mm. the first in my family to finish high school and go to university. And so I felt alone throughout a lot of these steps. And, you know, my parents, very sweet, always wanted to help, but I had no idea. Um, how to help yeah. me with with any of those aspects of you know going completing high school in a foreign country and going to university yeah. um, and also in our Kurdish community um, again not many people that had uh, completed tertiary education mm -hmm. and were able to guide me and so I did feel alone in the process a lot especially when I got to um, you know applying to law school um, mm. I had a high school advisor who basically um, asked me a series of questions um, mm -hmm. about my family's education, my sibling, you know, my parents, and came to the conclusion that law school was too difficult for someone like me, um, someone oh, with no her. history of education and from a refugee background. And so, uh, like, very much told me, you know, like, pretty straightforward told me, law school is going to be too difficult for you, you should do something else. Um, and oh I remember God. that so clearly, and, and I it almost made me want to apply to something else because I was like, well, you know, maybe it's too difficult for me. How do, how does someone like me go into law school? I have no idea even um, how to, how to do this process. I, I won't get in, I won't do it. Um, and so, mm. you know, this is just 
it's not unique to me. I've heard these kind of stories across um, yeah. people from various different backgrounds being told this. And so, yeah, it is personal. And um, I, f- I found it quite difficult to navigate law school, especially when I got to law school in New Zealand. It's quite elitist. Um, yes. I, I went to a public school. I came from a refugee background. I um, didn't have anyone in my family who had even finished high school, let alone go to law school or had like, you know, some sort of impressive job in their eyes and so mm-hmm. I was then you know, thrown into law school with a whole bunch of private school kids who had parents yeah. as judges and lawyers and you know uh, members of parliament and all sorts of you know really important um, mm. roles in society and so I felt like okay this place is not for me what am I even doing here um, many yeah. times throughout my degree yeah it was tough and wow. so I wow. definitely wish I had someone I had someone back then and and so the hope is that no one ever has to feel that way again like I did. Oh, that makes me so happy. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um what is your favorite snack? <laughs> um I okay, if you watch my Instagram stories, I think I post cucumbers literally like 10 times a day <laughs> and it's in particular cucumbers with smock. Ooh. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a sucker, and right now I'm in. Uh, you know, obviously I'm in, in our village, like I mentioned in the beginning of this uh, chat, and so I'm going into our garden and picking cucumbers myself. So these are homegrown, oh. organic cucumbers, and it's just yeah, it's amazing. Oh, I want some cucumbers now. Yeah. No. So that's my favorite snack, hands down for sure. <laughs> that's a healthy snack. Mine are yeah. hot cheetos. Now I feel so. better. <laughs> I feel like I need to do better. Oh, I, I know, I don't right? Have access to hot cheetos, otherwise that'd be mine too. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty tough to um, get my hands on that kind of stuff here. I do miss. I do miss yeah. the dirty fast food. <laughs> it's right. There's not yeah, many I mean, options. That, that was, that's why hot cheetos kind of um, find themselves in my work a lot because when I was living in Kurdistan um, when friends and family would come from the the states to Kurdistan they'd ask me like hey what do you need do you need any like medicine or whatever and I'd be like no just give me some hot cheetos that's all I want <laughs> just bring and they would like fill up suitcases and of hot cheetos but, yeah, yeah no, I don't blame little- you yeah it's tough to find there's lots of things that have to find here I've, yeah. If it weren't for this corona, I would be literally telling anyone who visits to bring me snacks, but <laughs> I don't have to wait for now. Yeah, yeah at least you're um, being healthy. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, how are you enjoying the fabrics? <clears throat> like, have you been going to the fabric stores and, and the bazaars? And yeah. Do you have a particular, like, you have a fabric dealer that you absolutely, that just like always hooks you up with all the best deals um, and. Yeah. yeah, well, I have, okay, I have, like, I move around a lot. So, technically, I l- work in Duhok, but because my dad mm. has, like, 10 siblings, I um, mm. spend, like, I, the way my work works right now is that I have, like, a work doing, a week doing interviews in Duhok and then a week remote. And so, I keep relocating during that, like, second mm. week that I can where I'm working remotely. And so, I feel like I have, like, my, my guy wherever I am. 
<laughs> I have like um yeah this amazing guy in Dehook that always brings me um like he's knows my taste now in fabric and so knows the <laughs> kind of stuff I like I I always tell him it can't be too pink can't be too bright can't be too glittery but it has to be like still outgoing and he's like okay I can work with that <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so no, it's good. I love and I love going to. Uh, um, I don't know if you've been to Diana. My grandma lives in Diana, and so um, it's not as you know, maybe not as fancy as Dehok and Holid for shopping. But they actually have like like little stores that are just gems, like things you yeah. cannot find um in the bigger cities. And so I've mm. found my you know found my guy in each city that hooks me up. Okay. Okay. Cool. 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 Um. Oh, Duke. <laughs> yeah, I love the hook. It's just amazing oh, being here. Some. Am I really here? <laughs> I've been wanting to live Isn't here for like... so long, and I'm like here now. Isn't it just so? Maj- it's such a like majestic little city between two mountains, yeah. and you're just like you look around. No matter where you are in the city, you're just like these two mountains are just hovering over you, yeah. and. I don't know. It's, it's I love something it. else. I love it. Yeah, it is a great feeling. Just being in Kurdistan as a whole, it's it's amazing. But I think, you know, it's weird because you can easily get lost here and just not leave. Um, and so mm. when I speak to my friends that I've, you know, studied with or worked with and they're like, so what are your plans? I'm like, I don't know. I'm pretty comfortable here. Like I might just renew my contract and just stay. And they find it so weird because they're like, but you're such a big city girl. Like you used to like talk about New York and London as being your like, you know, the places you want to live. And now you're just like, mm. I'm just going to stay in the mountains picking cucumbers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it has a, it has a way of just stealing your heart and yeah I could see myself not very leaving. comfortable yeah you get you feel comfortable there and, yeah well uh, motherland isn't it yeah it is it is indeed well uh I'm gonna ask you one more question okay is is there a character this is actually this this like this talk is going very struck. It's like actually pretty structured for what me and Pid usually do. I know this is like very not normal for us. <laughs> yeah, it, we usually just kind of maybe it's a good we, thing. Maybe we should do this more often. <laughs> yeah, maybe I feel like maybe it's me. Yeah, there. I feel like uh, because I'm such a you know typical lawyer, everything is so like <laughs> structured and logical. Maybe I'm like <laughs> negatively impacting you. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. No, no, no. I think it's like the right amount of like balance. Yeah, Um, that's good. We need more structure, Pin. Yes. (laughs) Um, is there a characteristic or quality that you feel is essential to success? And is success, yeah, like what is success to you? Um, I you also, you know, I think you. In a, in a very beautiful way in the beginning when we started talking, you're talking about how you come from this lineage of this this rich history of, of, of activists and freedom fighters. And for you, you didn't have, like, you you knew it was, you were going to take one, like, you, you, you said it something about, like, you just had to figure out what path was yours, but you knew it was still, like, you were still kind of continuing. And you have a lot of fire and, and ambition, and it comes from, you know, this yeah you know this place so yeah anyways so yeah I don't know what do you think well see about that. I, I definitely I think that um 
you know, having these kind of people in my life and growing up to the stories that I grew up to of my parents constantly, um, you know, being in really risky situations in Iran, for example, being, being political or human rights activists in Iran, fighting for Kurdish rights at that time was pretty dangerous. And so there's so many stories about them, like risking their lives. You know, my mom telling me that she would go, um, to her meetings and when she'd have notes from the, you know, the meeting and she felt like she was being followed by, you know, a member of um, the Iranian military, she'd literally like swallow the notes of the meeting just so that she wouldn't get caught. Oh. So, or like that many times she was on her way to a meeting and that she felt like she was being followed. And so she would change where she was going and go to, um, go to the hospital um, and get like, you know, a, uh, an IV or an injection or something like for something she didn't mm -hmm. have just to have an alibi in case she was asked where she was going or my dad, like being mm -hmm. imprisoned countless times um, for his activism. And so growing up with mm -hmm. these kind of stories, um, I felt like the circumstances I, I grew up in uh, almost dictated what, you know, path I was going to take. And like you, you know, very nicely um, summarized is that, I knew that it was going to be something fighting for these kind of issues. I just didn't know what it would look like. And I, I had a feeling it was mm. going to be something related to law from a young age um, because mm. of like various different scenarios I'd been in and, and, and having an interest for um, uh, the work that lawyers do. But ultimately, mm. I think that, you know, my parents took me to the other side of the world, literally like the furthest place they could take me from Kurdistan. Um, and mm -hmm. I still made my way right back here. And they always like find it so confusing. Like there was times when I first took this job and they were like, I, my mum was like, I, are you serious? Like, are you going to literally move back to where we fled from um, <laughs> to work? And to me, it just, I was like, yeah, why is that surprising for you? The way you raised me, the things you always <laughs> talked about, did you not think that I was going to want to follow like what you did? Or did mm. you just think I was going to say, oh, that was dangerous. Like, why did you do that? I don't want to do anything like that. But it almost like mm. shocked them. Like, I remember my dad telling me that obviously he, they both loved how, um, how uh, patriotic I was and how connected to Kurdish culture I was and how much I like uh, was interested in learning more about my people and history. But I think they... Mm in terms of safety they wished that I would just you know go down the corporate law route and you know become some mm. corporate lawyer and never come back to this region and do this kind of work and so I yeah. think as every mother and father they, it's for safety that they're so concerned but they can't be surprised yeah. um yeah and yeah so I think when when I think about these kind of issues that I'm committed to and this you know very deeply ingrained passion for human rights and justice that that really um derived from my identity as a Kurd but also the experiences of being a refugee in a refugee camp and being displaced and also learning more about other mar marginalized cultures and uh, people around the world um it, it's always going to be what I'm fighting for and it may not always be you know for Kurdish people I hope that it is but it may yes. you know my job may take me um somewhere else in the world but mm -hmm. I think for me success is being able to make a difference in as many people's lives as I possibly can so my measure yeah. of success is not based on 
you know, how much money I make, otherwise I wouldn't be in human rights law. Um, it's not <laughs> based on, um, you know, what kind of rank or um, um, level of seniority I get in my profession, but really being able to reach as many people, it's always about the people. And obviously there's going to be a bit of self-interest regardless of what we do, where it's human nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is nice to be recognized for the work that you do. But ultimately, yeah. for me, success is is being able to contribute to something that's much bigger than than me as a person, as an individual. Yes. Woo. That's awesome. Thank you. I feel Re Rez, a lot more. Is it Raz or is it Rez? Smart. So it's actually in Kurdish, Regine, but um, Regine. Westerners can't pronounce that, so they shortened my name to Rez. <laughs> Rez. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, that is about it. That was our interview with Rez Gardi. Um, I think her connection went bad in... So, but if you're listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We sure did. Learned mm -hmm. a lot. She's she's so generous with her um with her time and stories and um yeah. Yeah. So, we'll see you guys in another episode in another life. Bye. Bye. <laughs>